Hi, I'm Dylan David Kumar. Welcome to the second episode of the Race and Health podcast. Today we'll be talking about racism in HIV care. We've got two fantastic guests, Dr. Rageshri Derwan from the Race and Health team, who also in her day job is a sexual health and HIV consultant in London, and Bakita Kassada, who's a writer, researcher, health activist and poet. It's great to have you both here today. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your work in the field of HIV? So I do some work in the UK and outside of the UK. I'm a woman living with HIV. I'm a black woman living with HIV. So I primarily focus on access to healthcare and quality um, healthcare for people who have already been diagnosed with HIV. And it's primarily around quality of life and increasing all round well-being for people who are living with HIV, as well as advocating for our rights within different spaces. And Rageshri? Yeah, so um, I'm a clinician working with people living with HIV. And for me, my interest really started when I when I started um, the specialty. So prior to that, I'd kind of thought of HIV predominantly affecting gay men, especially white gay men, as that's what I was seeing on TV and on the media. And it was only when I started working in East London that I discovered that actually the majority of our patients were from ethnic minority backgrounds and there were many women And even now, kind of 12 years on, when I look at who's on the ward with AIDS-defining conditions, those people who aren't on treatment, again, I would say it's predominantly people from ethnic minority populations. So so for me, my work and my advocacy is around improving clinical outcomes for people living with HIV, especially those from racialised backgrounds. That's really interesting. Both of you touched on similar topics of exclusion and visibility, which we'll come back to. But I, I wonder if you could but tell me a little bit more about how racism impacts on people who live with HIV. Um, maybe Bakita first. Yeah, definitely. There are two elements to this, the context of racism and how racism impacts how racialized communities are seen within spaces. Um, I also think how racialized communities are treated within certain spaces as well. And this impacts the quality of care that we have access to. There is an assumption, as Rogeshu has actually already said, in terms of who is more likely to be impacted by HIV and the assumption that women don't get HIV. But the fact that um, racialized communities, especially black women, are more likely to get HIV, it means that often there are missed points of diagnosis. Um, so I believe that racism plays a part in how racialized communities are also seen in terms of the infantilization of racialized communities and how we are included in decision making, in the design of certain services that are meant to be for us, but we're less likely to be in those key decision making spaces. So those are a couple of the ways that I think racism particularly plays a role. Um, And also just in terms of actually experiencing the racism and that being a burden within itself, that impacting how we as racialized um, people um, feel comfortable and confident in in advocating for ourselves within healthcare settings. Because I definitely know that outside of an HIV context, I've been able to advocate for myself specifically because of the tools that I've learned through Mm. HIV advocacy. Can you give us some examples of the kinds of racism that you've experienced? It's difficult to 
be able to pin something down as racism um because i think a lot of the time racism mm-hmm. is considered something that is very overt which isn't necessarily how it plays out within a uk setting but one of the things that i've experienced as a woman living with hiv is the assumption that i wouldn't know my rights and also the assumption that i wouldn't be able to do certain things so say for example a, a person working within a healthcare setting had made an assumption that I wouldn't want children. Another person within a healthcare setting, this is non-HIV specific, had made an assumption that I wouldn't be able to work in a bar because of my HIV status. And the fact that as women living with HIV, it's more likely that a black woman is going to face some of those ignorances than other people within the wider UK population. And at this point, some of the um... You mentioned infantilization before, and I guess these are some of those examples. Ron Geshri, can you tell me your perspective from a healthcare professional? Sure. Um, so from our point of view, I think, you know, people living with HIV in the UK, for example, it, the majority of people in terms of heterosexual men and women are from ethnic minority backgrounds. So just in terms of numbers, we know, for example, that 80% of women in the UK are from ethnic minority backgrounds, and that's pre- predominantly black African. So there is just that acknowledgement that we are dealing mostly with our our service users, our people who are racialized. So I think sometimes working in healthcare, we don't often acknowledge that point and we don't often acknowledge that actually most healthcare workers don't reflect the communities they serve. There's been a lot of discussion mm. around bias, mm. both in, implicit and explicit. And that's something I do think we, we need to think about and think about how we may implicitly stereotype people from certain communities and try and work out how we can be better at overcoming that. Um, so, for example, you know, we often don't consult communities and ask them what they want. Um, and because of that, we may not be serving them in the right way. And I think in terms of HIV, um, there's also an issue around mistrust as well. So thinking about the history of kind of medical exploitation and experimentation, some communities may not trust healthcare services. And I was um, looking up some HIV conspiracy theories, actually, people are talking about them at the moment, especially with regards to COVID. So I thought it was an interesting um, thing to look at. But there's been a lot of HIV conspiracy theories. So for example, it being a biological weapon that was man-made um, to cause kind of mass genocide of black people and other populations. And when I speak to patients now, for example around switching medications to newer ones that are less toxic or you know some people still ask me whether I'm treating them as a guinea pig you know have these drugs actually been tested so conspiracy theories are quite out there but we know that people still don't trust us and there's very valid reasons for that Um, and I guess just one other thing is just the fact that we know that ethnic minority populations so particularly in the UK but also in the US and other countries due to structural racism may be more likely to have poorer socioeconomic status and all those things can really impact on kind of ability to engage in healthy behaviours. So I think that there's there's quite a few ways in which racism can mm. affect people living with HIV from racialised communities. So can you both tell me a little more about this exclusion um, phenomenon that's occurring? So it seems that, there, I mean, there's stigma around HIV to begin with, but then within people who have HIV, people are treated differently. Who, who gets excluded? Why and how does it happen? I think when it comes to racism in healthcare, I think there are certain groups who are made very hyper visible and then there are other groups who are made invisible. I think black Africans in particular are made hyper visible whilst also being excluded. There is a lot of talk about black heterosexual 
men and how they are more impacted by HIV, especially in terms of AIDS-defining illnesses. But there also seems to be this acceptance of Black heterosexual men don't want to take part in research or aren't interested in interventions. So there's a lot of talk about certain people without the real inclusion of them. And then on the other side, I think there is an invisibility around other racialized communities as well. So say people from South Asian descent, where they're not even being talked about and that's how they are excluded. So I think it it presents itself and it manifests in many different ways. And I think there's something to do with migration status as well and people assuming that um, people from racialised backgrounds are migrants. We actually know that most people are getting their HIV in the UK after they've migrated over. So there's something around HIV prevention HIV care in the UK is free, but again, that's not very widely known. Um, And people do worry that, you know, if they come into clinic, that they will get reported to immigration authorities. And we know that with the, you know, the recent data sharing um, scandal, etc, they they have every right to worry. But in terms of care, I do think it does put people off coming in. And I've, my clinical experience, I've seen many people present very unwell to hospital who have not been in HIV care for several years, because they've been worried about that. And um, I was just thinking, in preparation for this podcast about how HIV can be used politically. So in 2015, Nigel Farage particularly picked on HIV, costing £25,000 a year in terms of drugs and that being a waste to the NHS. So I think HIV is so stigmatised and it's often associated migrants. And we now have this fantastic new tool called PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is essentially a tablet that people can take to prevent them getting HIV. The other things in terms of migration, I think it can impact on people accessing other forms of HIV prevention, like testing, for example. So late diagnosis is one of the most important factors in terms of determining whether someone's going to be healthy from HIV. So you have a 10 times higher risk of dying in the first year of diagnosis if you're diagnosed late. And that's because the virus has had a chance to affect the immune system. Um, and we know from this year's data that all ethnic minority groups were more likely to be, likely to be diagnosed late than white groups. So that's around accessing te- testing and prevention as well. So we see that play out in terms of, again, who's unwell, who's on the wards. And linking into the point about the trial as well is I think sometimes the exclusion is language and the language that we choose to use um, and how things are framed. So one of the ways in which I think access to certain interventions such as PrEP and beyond is thinking about different communities relationships, whether it's words or ways of doing things. For some communities, words such as trial means that something may not have been proven yet. And I think that there were conversations about how some communities didn't realise that it wasn't PrEP itself that was on trial. PrEP had already been shown to be effective. What was trying to be understood was the demand for PrEP. And as that wasn't communicated properly, it did impact who felt PrEP would be an appropriate option for them and a good option for them. So there's a few really interesting things that came up. So what one about exclusion and we see um, migrants for all kinds of illnesses uh, excluded from the health system, the, the hostile environment towards migrants in the UK access this barrier charging systems, for, for example, the, the research, so exclusion from research and the kind of communication of messages to participants. And where, where does the fault lie in terms of researchers as people conducting these studies? They aren't intended to exclude particular groups. But why is that not happening? Bikita, if you could come in particular on that point. So you talked about this exclusion of communities and some of the advocacy work that you've done. 
Yeah, so in one of the roles that I'm in, I'm a, a researcher and I'm a peer researcher, which simply put means that it's somebody who is conducting research with participants who share the same lived experience of, as them. So in this instance, other people living with HIV. And few of the things that I've particularly tried to advocate for are the ways in which we ask certain questions, actually. So even something such as when were you diagnosed compared to when did you learn about your diagnosis. For example, people who have perinatally acquired HIV, they may know when they were first told about their HIV, but not when they were actually diagnosed because they would have been diagnosed at a very young age. And the majority of the people in the UK who were born with HIV or acquired it perinatally are people of Black African descent and, and Black people. In another way that I've also tried to advocate as well is just by involving more charities and more grassroots um, organisations that work directly with particular um, racialised communities to make sure that we're exploring all of the different recruitment channels that we can, understanding that where there is mistrust, we can build relationships with organisations who already have that trust that is established. And Rogesh, can you give us some of your experiences? So I'm just going to start from a I'm going to start from a top down level, um, which is around kind of funding and what gets published in terms of diversity on editorial boards, on funding committees. There's there's not much diversity there, so often that means that people aren't funding or publishing research that looks at racial disparities or the specific experiences of racialized communities living with HIV. So I think from that kind of start, it's difficult then to carry out that research if you, if you, if you can't fund it, if you can't publish it. And then, of course, there is the issue about what, what is the right research question. I don't think we're very good at talking to communities and hearing from them about what they think is important. So why bother doing research if it's not going to be useful to the communities that you're doing it on? And I think that's something we could really improve on. Absolutely. This is a part of a political agenda, isn't it? So we, we've talked a little bit about some of the structural issues. Um, I wonder if you could just explain to the listeners what, what, what is structural racism? What do we mean by that term? So it's the way in which different structures in society um, work to cause uneven outcomes for racialized communities. So, for example, if you think about institutional racism, think about the NHS. Um, it's the way in which its policies and procedures work together to cause unequal outcomes for, for racialized communities. Yeah, definitely. So, say one example that I would give is when we think about women and HIV, a lot of the time that intervention comes in terms of testing. A lot of the time when women are tested for HIV, it's when they are pregnant. And it means that there are missed opportunities for testing before pregnancy. Also, the way that women engage with sexual health might not be how they are targeted. And as um, black women are more likely and women from racialized communities are more likely to be diagnosed with HIV, it means that these structural factors impact women from racialized communities a lot more. Going back to what you said, Bakita, is it's not the kind of obvious kinds of racism where somebody in the street calls you a name. It's these systems that sort of sit behind, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think 
understanding the context of why these racial inequalities happen. I think it's really important that all of us are open to challenging our assumptions as well in terms of what we know about health more broadly and what we know about HIV specifically. I think it's really important to involve people with lived experience in our work, but making sure that that isn't done in a tokenistic way. And I think as well, just to amplify grassroots organisations who are doing the work already. I think often one of the, my frustrations is that racialized communities are considered hard to reach. And I often say, and I'm, people will start to get bored of me because I say often, but it's the people that you call hard to reach are people that I see every day. So where are you going? Explain it to me, please. And I, I think just being willing to humble ourselves in whatever institutions that we're in and recognise that the tools that we're using to engage are not always going to be the most effective. And that's not the community's fault. We need to adapt our ways to be easier to engage with. And you talked about the kind of work that you've done to break down some of these barriers. What can we do? So individual listeners to this podcast, some who work in the NHS or in the health system and some who don't. Are there, are there any sort of things you can advise the listeners to do? I, I just I think maybe the only thing that I, I would say is more to do with the fact that there are a lot of studies about the impacts of racism in the US. So often I think the UK focuses on the US because of that and it really links into what Rageshri was saying earlier about what is being published and what is being funded in terms of research but we really need to understand what's happening in the UK and naming that. So I think there's something about um, thinking about what we do when we um, make policies when we're changing things. I don't think we're very good at thinking about what we do and how it affects communities in different ways I think is really important going forward so if you're listening and you work in an organization like the NHS or some other organization that comes up with policies and procedures think about how what you're writing and what you're making impacts on different communities particularly those who are racialized yeah I mean people are hard to reach when you don't reach out to them to me, this is a little about taking a public health approach to some of these illnesses. So it's not just the individual who turns up in a hospital, how, how that individual gets to the hospital in the first place, and then the communities and all the determinants that lead that person to end up in that situation. And it's interesting at this moment when the world cares about one particular infectious disease. To, to me, it feels like it can go two ways. One where we only care about COVID-19 and nothing else. And then at the end, we just carry on as normal. Or one where we use the the information so people know what public health is for, for the first time ever, maybe. And there are celebrity infectious disease specialists. And maybe we can use that to talk about everything else, all the other illnesses and the connections between COVID-19 and other non-communicable diseases and, and health more broadly. So potentially we can use this to broaden the debates around health. Thank you very much, Bikita Rageshri. That's a fascinating conversation about all these different aspects of HIV care and how certain groups are omitted, oppressed, don't get the same kinds of care that others do. And also some of the ways that you discussed to try and reduce these barriers to involve people who live with HIV to, uh, to try and improve the health outcomes more broadly. Thank you for giving us some hope as well as the more unpleasant sides. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. That was really great.
This episode was produced and music created by Mitha Hawk and Juhi Um, editing by Sam Gomberg. For more information on race and health and the work we do, please visit www.raceandhealth.org. Thank you and see you all again on the Race and Health podcast.